Amen. Believe it or not, this coming Thursday is already Thanksgiving. And uh, in preparation for uh, Thanksgiving, we've been looking at, looking at uh, feasting on God's spiritual blessings and being thankful for them. Uh, so not that we still need these blessings. We have these blessings already. And now it's just turning and being thankful for them. Uh, and so we've looked at a number of different uh, blessings, spiritual blessings we have. That's why we have this sort of table set up here. Thinking about the, the spiritual blessings, even as we're looking forward to some, a big physical meal. Hopefully this coming Thursday for all of you guys who are getting together with family or the, the, the Thanksgiving um, packets that we sent out. Uh, hopefully there's going to be some, good, some great celebration. But I think about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving dates back to, I think it's 1621. Uh, when the, the pilgrims, who were a type of Puritan, uh, came to the New World, came to where we're here right now, basically, this general region of the world, with hope, with great hope in mind. And they came 11 months earlier, 11 months before Thanksgiving, they arrived on the tip of Cape Cod, and uh, their chances of survival were very low. Uh, they could have easily have died, been killed by the Native Americans. They could have easily frozen to death in that winter, or more, most likely starved to death. And yet it worked out. This is from, uh, looking for a good book on the, on the pilgrims, by the way. This is called The May, uh, Mayflower by Nathaniel Philbrick. Not a Christian book, I just want to give you that sort of warning, but some great insight. This is what he says, that it worked out differently, was a testament not only to the pilgrims' grit, resolve, and faith, but to their ability to take advantage of an extraordinary opportunity. During the winter of 1621, the survival of the English settlement had been in the balance. Massasoit, that's the sort of Indian chief, decision to offer them assistance had saved the pilgrims' lives in the short term. Their willingness to work together for that first winter saved their lives. Uh, Why did they come there? What was the purpose of them coming all the way from England by way of Holland to to, uh, what would become the United States, but to America? They did it with a hope. That God would use them to create a city on a hill. That God would give them a land that is free, with religious freedom for them to worship in whatever way they believe the scriptures reveals to them. Uh, They did it with the hope, not only in this life, but for eternal life. Uh, The blessing that I want us to look at this morning is the blessing of hope. Uh, Which is kind of strange, right? We're thankful for hope. Uh, Thanks. Giving is usually something you're looking back on, or maybe you presently have. Hope is something that you're looking forward to in the future. Uh, But we live with a certain Christian hope. And because of that Christian hope, it changes how we live in the present. And hopefully, if you've been a Christian for a number of years, has changed how you have lived your life in the past up to this point as we await that day to see what Christ would do. In fact, I think really hope is one of the greatest blessings that we could have. Without it, we're in big trouble. Uh, Really, without hope, we become, of course, hopeless. We turn to despair, to depression, perhaps even suicidal. uh, And there seems to be no meaning and purpose to life. In fact, Dante, in his Inferno, described hell this way. He said, above hell, there is a sign. And on that sign, it says, abandon hope, ye all who enter here. Hell, he is, he's defining hell itself as a place with no hope. No hope of getting better, no hope of escape, no hope of change, no hope of anything good. 
we in the, on the other side have an incredible hope of all that is good. In fact, that Christian hope is written all over the Bible. We're reminded of it again and again and again, and it shapes how we live our lives. I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to look at 13, verses 13 to 18. Uh, there is an outline in your bulletin if you want to see where we're going, if you want to take notes or anything like that. Um, but really, this is one of the key passages that describes the Christian hope of what we are awaiting, what we're looking forward to, and then it's used as a way of encouraging us in the present. Verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. We are called to be encouraged, friends, by the blessing of hope. So looking at verses 13 to 14 first, the blessing of hope changes how we grieve. Changes how we grieve. Look what he says in verse 13. But I don't want you to be uninformed. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a relatively new church. Because all the churches are relatively new at this point. But a church in the city of Thessalonica. These Thessalonian Christians. Um, they've been Christians, let's say, for a few years. And they've been meeting together. Worshipping together. And, as happens in any church, people are starting to pass away. People are starting to die. Uh, maybe they're older members, maybe some were being persecuted, whatever it may be. Some of the members are passing away, and they're sort of confused, because this is all new to them. And they're saying, well, if they died, and Christ hasn't come back yet, what happens to them? I mean, are, are they, do they stay dead? Or I mean, we're waiting for Christ to return, they've passed away. And Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I want you to know and understand this. This is important, because it shapes our hope for the future. And so he informs them. And I think that's important, friends, because sometimes when you're a new Christian, or you're perhaps even not even a Christian yet, you're just seeking and thinking to understand, there's some stuff you're just uninformed about. You're not being rebellious. You're, not, you know, you're just asking good questions, and hopefully you're doing exactly what is happening here to these Thessalonian Christians. You're learning. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And by those who are asleep, he means those who have died. Uh, where did the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, get this crazy idea of calling those who are dead asleep. He got it from Jesus, <laughs> because Jesus would do that. Jesus would say, she's not dead, she is only sleeping, or Lazarus is asleep. He would say that as a reference to their death. Now, why would you call death sleep? And the reason for that is, when you're asleep, you wake up. Uh, sleep is temporary. Sleep doesn't last forever. In fact, sleep can even be pleasant and sweet and good. But the key part of it is it's temporary. And so the early Christians took 
the word from Jesus and said, those who have died are only asleep, awaiting a day in which they will wake up. It's a temporary thing. Verse 13, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. He's not saying there is no such thing as grief for Christians. We certainly grieve, but there's a different type of grief. There's a grief with hope. Talk more about that in just a minute. But verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the heart of the Christian faith. That's our that's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins in our place on the cross. He rose in triumph over death and victory over the grave. Since we believe this, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus has conquered the grave as he has in the resurrection, then he has conquered the grave not just for himself, but for all those who are with him, which I think is important. Where are those who have died? Uh, some have tried to have claimed this idea of soul sleep. They're in the ground waiting. Uh, no, he clearly says they are with him. He's going to come back with them, so they're with him. Their bodies lie in the ground, but their spirits have gone to be with him, and when he returns, he takes them with him. But friends, notice this idea of grief. <laughs> There's such a thing as good grief. Charlie Brown didn't make that up. There really is such a thing as good grief. There's such a thing as bad grief, of course. Uh, what is bad grief? Grief without hope. Uh, grief, when you look at death as the ultimate end in which there is nothing after the grave. What is nothing? It's hard to even get your mind around the, the idea of nothing. I think it was Aristotle, the famous Greek philosopher, who described nothing as that which rocks dream about. That's how he described nothing. Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, when you die, it's the complete and absolute end. What a horrific thought. What a sad thought that is. In fact, anyone that's done some funeral, been to a number of funerals, and you know there's a, there's a difference between those who look at death with hope and those who look at death with no hope. It's a final goodbye. But there is such a thing as good grief. Uh, I think it's important that he does not say that Christians do not grieve. That would be a very strange thing to say. Because grief is just part of life. Uh, some of you guys right here, I know, are struggling with grief. In fact, there really is no such thing as avoiding grief. Grief will come. Uh, if you think about, uh, famously, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. Uh, we don't, not everyone goes through every stage. We don't all go through them in the same order. Some go through it faster than others. But nevertheless, we all go through this. There's denial, there's anger, there's bargaining, there's depression, and eventually, hopefully, acceptance. We grieve, even as Christians, over what we have lost. Matthew Henry said, we may weep for our own loss, though it may be their gain. Now, friends, there is such a thing as good grief, a grief that recognizes that, yes, something has been taken from me. I, I, I've, I've, I had something that is no more. And something about that relationship has changed. Uh, when C.S. Lewis lost his wife, Joy, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And yes, it's filled with hope, the Christian hope, but he even says in it, one thing is certain about death, something has changed that will never be restored. Yes, there's a future, but it's different than the past. Something has changed, and it will never be restored. But nevertheless, <laughs> there is a grief that comes with hope. A grief that recognizes that this is ultimately temporary. 
Uh, here's the difference between, I think, Christian, a Christian grieving with hope and somebody grieving without hope. It's like saying goodbye to someone you know and you love forever versus saying goodbye to someone you know and you love temporarily. Uh, someone's going away on a journey. They're going away uh, for a time being. Is it something that you, is it, are they going somewhere in which they will never return? in which there is a deep sadness in the pit of your stomach realizing you will never see this person again? Or is it someone going away on a vacation in which you're still sad because you're not going to see them for a little while, but they're coming back eventually? Uh, It may be months, it may be years, who knows? But eventually you'll see them again. He describes here a grief that happens with hope. You know, it's interesting. I was working, I decided on Monday, uh, I originally had a different sermon uh, that I was planning on, on preaching on spiritual food, but because getting ready for Thanksgiving. But I decided to do this one instead, having no idea that this week a close friend of mine and a brother in Christ, Dave Perkins, would pass away. And uh, just thinking about Dave, some of the memories he and I used to, he was in our, like I said, a Friday men, morning men's group, and we would debate different topics. We would uh, talk about his time in the military, love to talk about his time in, in Vietnam. Uh, we'd debate different topics of the Bible. We would debate whether a Christian should be a Mason, by the way. Uh, he believes strongly yes. I believe strongly no. That's not a good, that's an incoherent thing. Uh, we would debate back and forth with different issues. But I love Dave. And now I know that though he's gone, and it hurts, and you can feel it in the pit of your stomach, that I won't see him again, that you won't see him again in this life, the day is coming in which we will be reunited. All God's people will be reunited. We grieve, yes, but we grieve as those who now have hope. And friends, let the way you grieve, even as right now, I'm, I'm sure that someone in your mind and heart, perhaps, that you're, you're grieving the loss of them, let the way you approach that be always with hope, or an expectation that you are going to see them again if they're in the Lord, if they're in Christ. In fact, 1 Peter 3 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. People should notice there's something different about the way we approach death. Uh, Something is different about the way we grieve. And when they see that, they should say, tell me about this. I want that. I want what you have. Uh, Death doesn't seem to affect you the same way. There seems to be something underlying your grief. And that that is, of course, hope, and which gives us an opportunity to say, let me tell you why I have hope the way I do. Friends, hope shapes who we are. Hope is extremely important. Hope is dangerous for this world. It reshapes everything. And not only the way we grieve, but also our future. Look at verses 15 to 17. The blessing of hope fills our view of the future. He begins to describe in a little more detail what's to come for those who are in Christ. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. I like that. This is not Paul's opinion. This is not just an idea he had. This is not just something he made up. He's saying this is a word from the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean he's getting this directly from God? Certainly, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote, empowered by God. But he doesn't even have to go there. Jesus spoke about this. I mean, he could just turn to the words of Jesus. Jesus often spoke of his return on the clouds of heaven. Uh, that's the, that his departure was temporary and that he would come back for his people. Uh, even on the day that Jesus ascended, Acts chapter 1, you may know the story. Uh, he goes back into the clouds, disappears into the clouds in his ascension. Two angels appear and speak to the disciples. And what do they say? In the same way in which he was taken, he will return. 
Uh, so again and again, and then you turn to the book of Revelation, which speaks about the return of Christ. So the Bible again and again speaks about this day. This is not just some whimsical idea, uh, something made up to, make, to give comfort to those who are grieving. He's saying this is a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Now people hear that and say, we who are alive. Did Paul believe that Christ was going to return in his own lifetime? Uh, did he think that Jesus was coming back, you know, shortly after, five years, ten years from when he wrote this? And the answer is, we don't know, but he lived with that constant hope. And never once does he pick a date. In fact, he says specifically in the next section, which we're not going to look at today, don't choose dates and years and times. Don't get into that. But he lives with a constant expectation that it could happen at any time. And I think that's a good model for us. Uh, people ask me all the time, do you think, do you think the Lord's coming back soon? <laughs> And I would say, let's live with that expectation that he is. And so if it happens today, wonderful. If it happens in a hundred years, so be it. But we await it with eager expectation. We declare by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And again, you've heard me say this before. My hope, my prayer for this church family is that it will, this church will still be here on the day that Christ returns. I hope that's the case. Not necessarily the people in this church right now, but this church family and its sort of direct line from 1765 will still be here when Christ returns. But when that day comes, he says, you won't perceive those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, the Lord himself, meaning Jesus, will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the command of God, the day and time set by him, the voice of an archangel. We don't know much more about that other than there's only sort of one angel that's described as an archangel, Michael, uh, which literally means who is like God. Um, so the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, a common, a common reference to Christ's return, the trumpet sounding. And then the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we'll be with him always. Uh, this description, this time that's coming of us sort of being caught up in the air, uh, the lat- comes from the Latin word rapture. So if you've heard of the rapture, uh, this is the only reference in the Bible to the rapture. This is what it's talking about, being caught up in the air. And the idea is that God's people will meet him on his return. Now, this is where it gets into sort of debates over eschatology. So eschatology, study of end times. So if you're wondering, uh, the question is, Christ returns, we meet him in the air. So there we are together in the clouds. And then what happens? And that's where you have varying different views theologically about what happens next. And I'll just say, some people say, from there, he takes you back up. So he meets us halfway, takes his people, goes back up into heaven, waits seven more years, and then comes back again. So that's one view. Uh, I take a different view. I take the other view that he's on his way down. He meets, we meet him in the air, and then he returns and judges the living and the dead, and that's the end. Uh, and one of the reasons why I believe that is the word used there. Uh, that meeting is epinatus, is the Greek word, and it, it's often used uh, when you have sort of a dignitary that's coming to visit a specific place, a town, you send out a meeting party to him. And when that meeting party meets with that person, they return with him. That's the idea. It's an honorific meeting. Uh, That Greek word is used only two other times in the New Testament. In both times, it's used of meeting in which the person who's coming back returns. You're meeting him on his way in. It's an honorary way. But here's the point, friends. Uh, The point of this, of course, is not to 
sit here and sort of debate uh, eschatology and get into various different views and, and have arguments. It's to give us a sense of hope. Knowing what is to come. Knowing that the, the future which we are waiting for. And that view of the future shapes how we live now, here today. You know, isn't it amazing that we know the future? Everybody wants to know the future. We don't know everything about the future, but we know a few things about the future. Everybody wants to know the future. So you have, of course, fortune tellers, and uh, they'll tell you. They can, you know, for a certain price, they can tell you the future, right? I've noticed, I've never seen a fortune teller win the lottery. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you ever said, I won the Powerball, how did you win? I'm a fortune teller and I could guess the numbers. That never seems to work. I wonder why that never works, right? Uh, they always have this general idea, something like, this next month you're going to go through a hard time and then you're going to push through it and do well. If I said that to you, I bet you everyone in this room will probably find that true in some way over the next month. I mean, it is the holidays and everything. So you, uh, they, they give these general ideas. Most of it, I would say 99.99 repeating is complete hogwash. Um, there may be something spiritual, and if it is something spiritual, it's not of God. God tells us not to turn to fortune tellers. Um, so if there is something to it, it's something dark, something not good. Uh, others say we can read the future in the stars, right? Astrology. Uh, if we look deep enough into the stars and sort of uh, what it tells us about our future and what sign we are, and again, hogwash, <laughs> a bunch of nonsense, nothing in the Bible certainly says, gives us any hope that, about that. The only uh, sort of somewhat exception is one we're going to look at in this live nativity. Uh, it's the Magi who see something in the stars that leads them to Bethlehem. And what I would tell you about that is that's not them reaching up to God to grasp his will. It's God reaching down to them in a language they can understand in their world, in their religion, and calling them out of that into the Savior. Um, people who play the stock market, they want to know the future, right? Everybody wants to know what's to come. <laughs> and yet nobody can tell you what the future is except for the word of the Lord. Uh, one of the ways we trust that the scripture is true is God unabashedly tells us the future. Again and again, the Bible is filled with prophecy. It's filled with a, a very specific things telling us what's to come. And it says, go ahead and test it. If this doesn't happen, don't believe it. If it does happen, that shows you it's the, a word from the Lord. Of course, the Bible is filled with hundreds of prophecies. Every single one of them comes true. I was just reading my devotionally Zechariah um, today and yesterday. And it talks about looking upon the one they have pierced. And this is written un undoubtedly well before Christ and well before crucifixion. And it says they will look upon the Messiah, the one that they have pierced. I mean, where does this come from? It gives us a, a clarity about what is to come. But here we're actually given a, a specific about the end. <laughs> How this world, or at least this age as it is, will come to an end. That's the big question, right? Everybody wants to know about the end of the world. What, what's going to happen? And there's all different ideas. I think the sort of topping the list of how this world's going to end would be um, some meteor strikes the earth and burns us up. Or global warming kind of warms the planet until everything falls apart. Or, um, or artificial intelligence. That's the new one, right? I've heard, I've heard I was listening to uh, uh, Elon Musk. He was talking about artificial intelligence. It's a little bit of a rap trail, but it's really interesting. And he said that eventually it's going to get smarter and smarter and smarter. And it's going to replace us, in his mind, in the same way humans have replaced chimps. So we might live in a sort of zoo for the rest of robots. That was his view of the future. I thought, wow, what a dark view of the future. 
Some people say it's going to be a, a zombie apocalypse that's coming, right? So all of this tinkering we're doing with all these biological medicines and all that stuff, eventually we're going to create something that's going to spread. It's going to basically wipe out our planet. Now again, all these things are things that we should certainly be careful of and be wise about. But what a blessing that the scripture actually tells us that the future is filled with hope. It's not full of darkness. It's not full of dread. It's filled with hope. Look how he ends it. Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, When you have a a therefore, (laughs) that's sort of summarizing the section beforehand. Why am I telling you all of this, Thessalonians? What's the purpose of me going into detail about what's to come? For this reason, therefore, encourage one another with these words. To encourage is to put courage in one another. uh, To comfort each other. Uh, The future, friends, is filled with encouraging news. Uh, the, The best is yet to come. And I don't know why it is that sometimes it seems like Christians are the most pessimistic people. We look at the future, oh, the world is going so bad. Everything is terrible. We have the greatest gift of all. We have the gift of hope. We know that it turns out well. We know that in the end, Jesus wins. You know, that's the best summary of uh, the book of Revelation. So people like to debate the book of Revelation all the time. You summarize it in two words. Jesus wins. That's the end. It all comes together. Let's encourage one another. Friends, when we think about particularly the next generation, uh, sometimes we get so down on them. We look down on what's happening in the next generation. Friends, we have, we have the word of encouragement. Uh, we have a, a, a word, we have a, the blessing of hope. Uh, I had the opportunity this week of doing the chapel service at Bradford Christian Academy. I was terrified, all right? So I had to speak to, uh, what is it, uh, ninth to 12th graders. And uh, I, I, I just turned 40 this year. I can't relate well to teenagers anymore. I, I don't know how to relate well to teenagers. So I, I thought it was just going to be a small group. And I talked to the, the person that leads chapel, Monica. And I said, how many kids? And she said, oh, there's not too many. There's only about 120, 130. So, so I stepped into this room, no podium, uh, no microphone. Just go in there, 120 kids, and talk to them for 20 minutes. And uh, it was awesome. Actually, I really enjoyed talking to teenagers filled with incredible hope. If, if you look more carefully at the next generation, friends, trust me when I say there's nothing to be pessimistic about. There's some bright, talented, godly kids who are doing a great job following the Lord in a new world. Friends, encourage one another. That's why we, we're talking about this today. <laughs> Hopefully you're encouraged Thinking about what's to come. Uh, The future is good. The future is beautiful. The future is wonderful. And even if things get rough in this world, which they will, by the way, from time to time, the ultimate end is especially good as Christ returns for his people. Friends, we think about what, of all the blessings that God has given us, think about this blessing of hope. Uh, Think about it as you approach grief. If you haven't had to grieve much in this world, just keep living, because you're going to have to eventually. But when we approach grief, we know we can approach it with hope because it's temporary. The blessing of hope fills our view of the future. Again, we don't look with sadness or fear on the future, with hopelessness or despair. We look with confidence that God is in control, that Christ sits on the throne 
and that the ultimate end is one of victory. And friends, we're called to be encouraged and to encourage one another with this hope. Now, friends, when you think about the feast of blessings <laughs> that God has given us, spiritual blessings to be thankful for, uh, we started by looking at spiritual victory that we have. I was kind of heading towards Halloween, just thinking about how God has given us complete victory over all the spiritual forces in this world. That we live in a spiritual world, certainly. Uh, very little disagreement about that nowadays. Uh, but that all that is in this world, spiritually, uh, we have victory because the stronger man has rescued us. Uh, but today we look at this blessing of hope. That the future is good. Uh, friends, I hope this coming Thanksgiving, <laughs> yes, you'll be thankful for the squash. And thankful for the green beans. And especially thankful for the mashed potatoes, right? I mean, those are the best. Uh, thankful for all of the food that we have. But you look at the incredible feast of spiritual blessings that God has given us to feast on as we await his return. After I close in prayer, I have a short video just, just thinking about some of the things that we regularly take for granted that we can be thankful for. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the hope that it offers us. Lord, I pray for anyone here, in particular, who is grieving right now at the loss of a loved one, whether a family member, a close friend, a neighbor, maybe someone who's passed away even, even a few years ago, and yet the wound is still deep. Thank you, Father, that we as Christians don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. Lord, I also pray for those here who may be full of fear and worry over the future. Maybe look at it with a sort of gloom and doom attitude. Fill them with encouragement instead, Lord. Fill them with an optimism about what is to come. That yes, the, the world wanes and ebbs and flows in terms of its love for you and love for one another. But in the ultimate end, Christ returns at the command of God, at the cry of the archangel, at the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive at the time will meet the Lord in the air, and he will be with us forever. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to encourage one another. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.